Dijkstra. We are continuing our series on these Sundays of the Great Fast. This is the third Sunday of Lent, the veneration of the Holy Cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking that we could begin with a little bit of a prayer. This is from the Kentuckian for the Sunday. So in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. No longer does the flaming sword guard the gate of Eden. The tree of the cross has quenched its flames gloriously. The sting of death and the victory of Hades are banished. And you, O Savior, came and called those in Hades... Return again to paradise. I wanted to begin by saying that this feast is a little different from the feasts of other feasts of the cross in our liturgical year. This feast is different uh, from the one in September specifically because this one does not commemorate a specific event per se. Yes, Christ's victory is won at Calvary. It's a place and time that can never be separated from the content of the cross. Today, though, is meant to be kind of a rallying moment in our Lenten journey. We have taken a break, not with our Lenten observance, but kind of thematically. We reflect that after our labors is something greater than any of our efforts could ever achieve. At the same time, the gospel doubles down on our involvement in the cross during Lent. We read the words of Jesus in St. Mark's Gospel today that anyone who wants to follow me has to pick up the cross. Anyone who wants to be a Christian needs to know that there is suffering. And so it's kind of a a mixed bag of of things when we look at the cross. We, We look at the cross and we know that Our Lenten labors are not yet over, but they're not in vain, that we're going towards something, we're reminded of the end goal. But also, at the same time, we kind of, um, there's no half measure in our Lenten observances, we we actually go into it further. And so, to say that it's a break is kind of true, to say that it's not at all a break, that that it's doubling down on Lent on this Sunday is kind of true also. I was talking about <laughs> last week in on the podcast that every year there's been like this uh, a food group, not necessarily a food group, but like a chain, a fast food chain that kind of pulls at my heart. Like, I wish I could go eat there right now, but I can't. And it's kind of this dying to self. This year, uh, it's been ice cream. I live right across from an ice cream store. Uh, kind of like, you know, one of those mom and pop places. And it's like one of the best ones in Saskatoon. Um, and, and I see that open sign. I think in past years, they weren't open at this time of year. It has, that has to be true because now I see that glowing red open sign and I, and I just think about the contents of, of their ice cream scoops and, um, and how lovely that would be. But, but it's the third Sunday of Great Lent. I gotta double down on my observance. Gotta find some some fortitude. 
Got to not listen to my wife when she's like, yeah, it's okay if you go tonight. Nah, I'm just kidding. Sarah's great. But now on a more serious note, I wanted to mention coronavirus. Because I have a podcast and there's a pandemic right now. So obviously, I'm going to talk about coronavirus. Um, the It's an epidemic. Well, or a pand- I don't know what kind of demic it is. But whatever kind of demic it is, um, it's bad. You know, there aren't any good demics. Anyways, I was driving with my father-in-law tonight and we're talking about all the different sports leagues that are kind of canceled right now. The Junos are canceled. Um, NHL is canceled. NBA is canceled. And my father-in-law goes, yep, I guess it's Lent for everyone now. And I kind of gave me pause to think that that is just an off-handed comment, but no, he was completely right. He's completely right. It is now Lent for everyone. I often think that we don't really take into consideration the liturgical year and the events of the life of, you know, the world. Like, we treat them like they're two parallel lines going in the same direction and never, you know, between them shall they meet. But no, I think they're mystically united. I think it's Lent for everyone right now. I think that's essentially what's going on. And we're going to be approaching the Sunday of the cross in the midst of this kind of wild craziness. Um, whether whether it's, it's sound or not, whether it's deserved or not, I have no idea. That That's something that's kind of beyond my pay grade. Uh, there's, there's a whole uh, gamut of reaction um, out there. And I, I have no idea what, what's right or what's wrong. But I think that for a lot of us, uh, we try to ignore the fact that we are going to die one day and that we're going to encounter suffering. I was often, I was thinking back to Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Now, uh, I haven't reread it, so I'm going to try to recall what happens uh, in a little bit, in, in as much detail as I possibly can. Basically, how it ends is that there is this old grandmother who has been difficult in the entire story, not a kind person, not a, not a, not someone you want to be around, um, curmudgeonly. And at the end of the story, she is held at gunpoint by a few robbers. And in that moment, in being held at gunpoint, she kind of gains composure over her life. And she she speaks in such a way that that kind of undermines her character that she's kind of shown us throughout the previous story. And the robber, the bad guy at the end, shoots her. And she dies. And his, and his, uh, what do you call it? Criminal in arms? I'm, I'm blanking on the term. Um, his partner in crime. There you go. Oh my gosh, criminal in arms, really. Anyways, his partner in crime says to him, hey, that was a really good woman, or something to that effect. And his response is, yeah, she was a, she'd be a good woman if she had someone to point a gun at her every day of her life. And it's a chilling, 
very Flannery-esque kind of ending. Okay, what does that have to do with this? I think for a lot of us, coronavirus is that gun. It's the barrel of the gun, and we're at the opposite end. And we often, while we are at the business end of our mortality, come to certain realizations, we gain a certain composure, and we try to be better. I think that's what happened. Well, certainly, you know, that's what the last judgment is meant to do. It's to gain composure over your life, over the fear of hell. And people used to say, I remember this kind of growing up in the faith that they used to say, it's better to, to do something for the love of God than the fear of hell. But heck, the fear of hell isn't something that's beneath me. Sin ought to be beneath me. And if something like coronavirus, if something like the end of a barrel of a gun, like any kind of disease, if that, if that motivates you to be better, if that motivates you to reject sin, then thank God for coronavirus. That is probably the most insensitive thing that I've ever said, that thank God for this current pandemic. But if we, if we use it as a means to jostle ourselves, to gain composure over our own kind of re- rebelliousness against God, if it, if it somehow dissuades us from sin, puts a bad taste in our mouth towards that which is beneath us, beneath our dignity, then thank God for it. Now, believe me, I want you to like me. And I want you to like this podcast. I want everyone to listen to this podcast. I want us for all to be friends. But if you believe that in this conversation about coronavirus, that I'm not taking in the human cost of coronavirus as it has one, then I would like you to consider the following. I want you to think about the summer of shame, the summer of, I believe, 2018, where a Pennsylvania grand jury found that over decades and decades, hundreds and hundreds of children were abused viciously by those in their communities that they were supposed to trust the most. I want you to think about the sex industry. I want you to think about how there are thousands of people over decades who, for whatever reason, believed that the only means, the only real means for them to secure an income was reducing their bodies and sexuality as means of consumption. I want you to think about the marriages that have been destroyed. I want you to think about the minds that have been warped. I want you to think about abortion. I want you to think about the millions of lives who, unlike yourself, were not allowed to exist. I want you to think about someone else having the right to choose whether someone lives or dies, and your right to vote for representatives who hold these views. I think there is our human cost. So I'll repeat myself. If being at the opposite end of a barrel of a gun makes us do better, then so be it. I believe our course corrective begins with our veneration of the cross of Christ. And I believe 
St. John of Damascus' words today can help us do that. So let's begin. St. John of Damascus begins by citing St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The word cross is foolishness to those that perish, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. For, he, quote, he that is spiritual judges all things, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit. End quote. For it is foolishness to those who do not receive in faith, and what do not consider God's goodness and omnipotence, but search out divine things with human and natural reasonings. For all the things that are of God are above nature and reason and conception. For should any one consider how and for what purpose God brought all things out of nothing into being, and aim at arriving at that by natural reasonings, he fails to comprehend it. For knowledge of this kind belongs to spirits and demons. But if anyone, under the guidance of faith, should consider the divine goodness and omnipotence and truth and wisdom and justice, he will find all things smooth and even and the way straight. He quotes Hebrews, But without faith it is impossible to be saved. End quote. For it is by faith that all things, both human and spiritual, are sustained. For without faith neither does the farmer cut his furrow, nor does the merchant commit his life to the raging waves of the sea in a small piece of wood, nor are marriages contracted, nor any other step in life taken. By faith we consider that all things are brought out of nothing into being by God's power, and we direct all things, both divine and human, by faith. Further, faith is the ascent free from all meddlesome inquisitiveness. Now what St. John is saying, it's, it's actually very important. We won't know the true meaning of the cross from just spec human speculation, on the world. I mean, prior to, prior to Christ, it was a terrifying use of torment, now to be realized as this sanctifying symbol. So what he's doing is he's setting up, in our understanding of the world, kind of lines of demarcation between what can be known through reason and what's known through faith. Now, he's not so much doing it on the reason side, but he's saying that the true meaning of the cross is only understood through faith, only understood through um, that capacity. And he kind of starts to unravel what faith is. However, to us, it may not be as clear as to the people of the day. And so what I've done is I've gone through and I was like, who could who understood what faith was and explained it to people today? you know, to our world. And first person I thought of was Pope Benedict. And so I went and I looked up some quotes from Pope Benedict because he instituted the year of faith. And so here are just some messages from his first few general audiences, because in that year of faith, his Wednesday audiences were about faith and kind of like a point of catechesis he was teaching. And he says in the opening one on October 24th in 2012, let us ask ourselves, where can man find that openness of heart and mind to believe in God, who made himself visible in Jesus Christ and who died and rose, to receive God's salvation so that Christ and his gospel might be the guide and the light of our existence, 
The answer, we can believe in God because he comes to us and touches us. Because the Holy Spirit, a gift of the risen one, enables us to receive the living God. Enables us to receive the living God. Thus, faith is first of all a supernatural gift, a gift from God. And that's so true. And that's what St. Um, Saint John is saying as well. He's saying that our capacity to believe in these and in God's own self-disclosure to us are things of faith. I mean, I think Bishop Barron, he has some videos on this. Maybe I'll include them in the show notes where he actually explains what faith is um, in a way. He talks about, I believe he talks about interpersonal relationships and someone saying, you know, you get to know someone and they say, I love you. And you either believe them or you don't believe them. And and believing them is an act of faith. But that's not all what faith is. It, it is a capacity to believe. And he also says on November 14th, a path, faith is a path which leads to knowledge and encounter with God. So it's, it's, it's our ability to know God. It's our ability to encounter God. And he further says on, on his address on November 21st, I think this is the one that I liked the most. If looking at the mystery, reason seeks darkness. Oh, if looking at the mystery, reason seeks darkness, sees, sees darkness. It is not because there is no light in the mystery, but rather because there is too much of it. Just as when humans raise their eyes to look at the sun, they are blinded. But who would say that the sun is not bright or indeed the fount of light? Faith permits us to look at the sun, God, because it is the acceptance of his revelation in history and, so to speak, the true reception of God's mystery, recognizing the great miracle. Faith is a gift from God, and it is, our, it is a gift to see the truth. It's like, whenever I thought of faith before, I thought of like believing in something with the absence of knowledge or reasoning. But what faith is, is more like one of our human faculties, like sight and hearing, we, I think we often hear of the phrase, uh, the eyes of faith. And it's because with this gift from God, we are given, it's a supernatural gift to, uh, to give us the ability to see, the ability to believe, and the ability to have participation with him. And so what St. John is saying to understand what the cross is, because, because that participation is a participation in God's self-disclosure. He reveals the meaning, the inner meaning of himself, and he reveals the inner meaning of what the cross is. I want to repeat the last few lines now that we've read some of Benedict. He says, by faith, we consider that all things are brought out of nothing into being by God's power. So we believe that all things have their origin and creation with God. It's our, it's our ability to believe that. And we direct all things, both divine and human, by faith. He's saying that there are things that you do in everyday life, like he talks about um, marrying someone. He talks about a farmer working in the field. You know, that they are working towards something that is promised. You know, I love you, you'll love me. And the farmer is, you know, putting his faith in the fact that his crops will grow. He's assenting to something that is not tangible yet. 
And he says, you practice faith in your regular life with the things of the world. And he says, further, faith is an ascent free from all meddlesome inquisitiveness. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't reason. He's not saying that. He's just saying where the boundaries lay. He's saying that, you know, if you try to understand what the cross is through, through your rational mind, you're not going to get it. It's only through faith. Anyways, I'm going to keep going. He continues to say, Every action, therefore, and performance of miracles by Christ are most great and divine and marvelous. But the most marvelous of all is his honorable cross. For no other thing has subdued death, expiated the sin of the first parent, despoiled Hades, bestowed the resurrection, granted the power to us of contemplating the present and even death itself prepared the return to our former blessedness, opened the gates of paradise, given our nature a seat at the right hand of God, and made us the children and heirs of God, save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For by the cross all things have been made right. Quote, so many of us, the apostle says, as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. That's Romans 6.4. And as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Galatians 3.27. Further, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 24. Lo, death of the death of Christ, that is, the cross, clothed, clothed death with, with the hypostatic wisdom and power of God. And the power of God is the word of the cross, either because God's might, that is the victory over death, has been revealed to us by it, or because just as the four extremities of the cross are held fast and bound together by the bolt in the middle, so also by God's power, the height and the depth and the length and the breadth that is every creature visible and invisible is maintained." Well, there's a lot there, and I'm going to try my best to unpack all of that. I think I can best explain something of what's going on there through an analogy. Because it, a lot of this stuff really, it hits home for me in a, in a very personal way. When I started going to university, I was, shocking statement, I was first going through to become like an x-ray tech. And I started to take these electives. One, if you know me, you know, for people who know me, they know that that is not something that's within my wheelhouse. I am not an x-ray tech type person. And, and I started to take philosophy and history, really enjoying it. And, but it was a secular university and I wasn't really getting my, my Catholic side of things. You know, you hear the other side of the argument, but never the counterpoint to it. And so I started to look into um, different resources. And one of them was, was Bishop Barron. And in one of his speeches, he said, we need to get back to an, an Augustine philosophy of history. And I was like, what's that? And what it happened was, that was my first little impetus to start to go down the history road. I, I'm currently, I have taken a, I took a break, but I'm, I'm getting back to my history degree. 
And I came across, when I was looking up what this Augustan philosophy of history was, someone in, who in the 20th century made, made it um, revive again was Christopher Dawson. He was a Catholic historian, an Englishman. And what a, what a Christian philosophy of history does, it goes back to a retelling of history by St. Augustine in his City of God, City of Man analogy. And his own, it's a, a philosophy of history is actually, I, I wouldn't say is the right word, it's a theology of history. It is history that's understood in the light of the incarnation of God's intervention into human history. And, and that is, to Dawson and to Augustine, to all the saints, the absolute climax of human history. To be a Catholic historian means believing that. Means believing that the incarnation, the life of Christ, is the crux and is the centrifugal point that all history revolves around is God's self-disclosure of himself, of his inner life, in becoming human and walking the earth. And what St. John is saying is that the cross is the most magnificent thing of that. So every action, therefore, and performance of miracles by Christ are most great and divine and marvelous, but the most marvelous of all is his honorable cross. And he, and he goes through all the reasons why that is. For no other thing has subdued death, expiated sin of the first parent, despoiled Hades, bestowed the resurrection, granted the power to us of contemning the present and even death itself, prepared the return to our former blessedness, open the gates of paradise given our prepared given our nature a seat at the right hand of god and made us the children and heirs of god save the nature as save the nature save the cross of our lord jesus christ and he ends it by saying for by the cross all things have been made right that problem that humanity had, the, the enslavement to sin, I, I'm not going to go through it again because he says it's so good and so all-encompassing that everything is accomplished through the cross. The cross is the most important thing that has ever happened and will ever happen. Any worldview that does not regard the cross as its premise is an idol. It is a lie. And it is an alternative religion. The premise of the cross is one that excludes all others. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you have an ideology, if you have uh, a narrative that you live your life to that doesn't have the cross as its necessary premise, it is an idol. Today we have worldviews that are, that are just materialist and modernist that only those things that are that can be seen are things that I can interpret my life with rather than understanding who I am and what the world is for through the self-disclosure of God that is so magnificently 
seen with clarity, with Jesus, with his arms stretched out upon the cross. We look at gender ideology today, and it is physically the opposite direction of a cross. It is a crouching down and looking between my legs to tell me who I am and what the world is. It is actually an inversion of the cross. Now, we believe that all theology begins with the premise of a divine self-disclosure, a theophany, a moment where God shares something of himself that human knowledge could not attain on its own, and from there we, we, um, we speculate on it. We pray with it. And there are all these different kinds of quote-unquote theology now where it's, you know, gay theology or feminist theology or... I don't know, eco-theology. But really, it's not theological at all. It's imposing these concepts and things that we find within the world upon God, and we say, this is what you're about, and not listen to what he says what we're about, what he's about, his own inner life. Anyways, let's continue with St. John's words. This was given to us as a sign on our forehead, just as the circumcision was given to Israel. For by it, we believers are separated and distinguished from unbelievers. This is the shield and weapon against and trophy over the devil. This is the seal that the destroyer may not touch you. Exodus 12, 23. And saith scripture. This is the resurrection of those lying in death, the support of the standing, the staff of the weak, the rod of the flock, the safe conduct of the earnest, the perfection of those that press forward, the salvation of soul and body, the aversion of all things evil, the patron of all things good, the taking away of sin, the plant of resurrection, the tree of eternal life. I think if I were to sum up what St. John is saying there in that little akathis to the cross, is that the cross is the ability for people to become saints. The saint conduct of the earnest, the perfection of those that press forward, the salvation of soul and body, the aversion of all things evil, the patron of all things good, the taking away of sin, the plant of resurrection, and the tree of eternal life. That, to me, says that the, the ability for us to have these things and that they would sanctify our lives is in and through the cross. I was pretty amazed by Sarah a few weeks back um, when it was, we had the weekend of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus Sunday. And in her interpretation of the gospel that day, she noticed that, you know, when Zacchaeus climbs the tree, it's a prefigurement of the saints. It's a type of the saints where we, though we are little, we climb up the tree of the cross and we ascend to see Jesus. And then this is an image for our deification. Because this is essentially what happens with Zacchaeus is he rises up to see Jesus, though he is little, and he does so on the wood of the tree. 
And this is what the cross does for all of us if we are willing and able to ascend it, little though we are. I think it would be good for us to maintain that image every time in our minds, every time we see a cross, every time we read about the cross, that we ourselves are supposed to scale it like Zacchaeus. Anyways, let's continue um, this exposition. So then, this same truly honorable and august tree, on which Christ hath offered himself as a sacrifice for our sakes, is to be worshipped and sanctified by contrast with his holy body and blood. Likewise, the nails, the spear, the clothes, his sacred tabernacles, which are the manger, the cave, Golgotha, which bringeth salvation, the tomb, which giveth life, Sion, the chief stronghold of the churches, and the like, are to be worshipped. In the words of David, the father of God, quote, let us enter into his tabernacles, let us do reverence to the place where his feet stood, Psalm 131.7. And that is the cross that is made clear by what follows, quote, Arise, O Lord, into your rest, Psalm 131.8. For the resurrection comes after the cross. For if of those things which we love, house and couch and garment, are to be longed after, how much the rather should we long after that which belonged to God, our Savior, by means of which we are in truth saved. So it should be noted that where St. John is saying worship, worship had a much more broader term in years previous. Uh, It was rather serendipitous. I think Taylor Marshall just recently did a podcast with uh, Timothy Flanders, uh, and they, they addressed this issue. And I believe it was Robert Bellarmy who gives kind of like the Western um, definitions of the levels of worship. And I think that's, if you want to go back to that, I think it's very helpful in understanding what exactly St. John is saying. No, we don't worship the cross in and of itself. We honor the cross for what, it, for what uh, was accomplished with it. I think I would also like to point out that when he mentions David, he calls David the father of God. We have in our church calendar a feast day shortly after Christmas that is the forefathers of Jesus. It's the day in which we celebrate um, St. Joseph as well. And, um, you know, we considered David and Joseph, you know, the forefathers of Jesus. And this is where that, this kind of epitaph, father of God, comes from. So we're going to continue. Moreover, we worship the image of the honorable and life-giving cross, although made of another tree, not honoring the tree, God forbid, but the image as a symbol of Christ, as we were just saying. For he said to his disciples, admonishing them, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, meaning the cross. And so also the angel of the resurrection said to the woman, Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. And the apostle said, We preach Christ crucified. For there are many Christs and many Jesuses, but one crucified. He does not say, Speared, but crucified. It behooves us then to adore the sign of the cross. For wherever the sign may be, there also will he be. But it does not behoove us to adore the material of which the image of the cross is composed, even though 
it be gold or precious stones, after it is destroyed, if that should happen. Everything, therefore, that is dedicated to God we adore, conferring the adoration of Him. This next paragraph is the final paragraph, and it brings everything to a very weighty close. The tree of life which was planted by God in paradise prefigured this honorable cross. For since death was by a tree, it was fitting that life and resurrection should be bestowed by a tree. Jacob, when he worshipped the top of Joseph's staff, was the first image was the first to image the cross, and when he blessed his sons with crossed hands, he, met, he made most clearly the sign of the cross. Likewise also did Moses' rod when he smote the sea in the figure of the cross and saved Israel, while it overwhelmed Pharaoh in the depths. Likewise also the hand stretched out cross, crosswise in routing Amalek, the bitter water made sweet by a tree and the rock rent and pouring forth streams of water, and the rod that meant for Aaron the dignity of the high priesthood, and the serpent lifted in the triumph on a tree as though it were dead, the tree bringing salvation to those who in faith saw their enemy dead, just as Christ was nailed to the tree in the flesh of sin, which yet knew no sin. The mighty Moses cried, You will see your life hanging on a tree before your eyes, and Isaiah likewise. I have spare, spread out my hands all the day unto a faithless and rebellious people. But may we who worship this obtain a part in Christ the crucified. Amen. So we see very quickly, probably not a dozen but almost a dozen points in scripture where the Christ is prefigured. He mentions paradise. He mentions the snake that is lifted up. He mentions, I'm just looking right now, Joseph's staff, uh, the wood that is placed in, I never thought about that before. The wood that, that Moses put into the bitter water to make sweet. He that is a prefigurement of the cross. And there are many others as well that he doesn't mention here. I mean, the, the wood of the ark is said by some fathers to be a prefigurement of the cross. And it's like all of human history, this was scattered throughout our literature to come to a climax in the cross. And not only directly in the literature do we see prefigurement of Jesus. I was recently listening to Brant Petrie's talk on the on Holy Week. And he's talking about how at Passover, you've got about a million um, men who are coming to the temple to have lambs uh, sacrificed for, for Passover. And he says a few things that are very interesting. In order to do this, there needed to be kind of an assembly line because it's just such a massive undertaking. An assembly line of rabbis where you would slit the, the, uh, the sheep's neck and the blood would pour out and then that's passed, away, passed on to the, to the altar. But then what I found the most interesting thing, well, there were two really interesting things that I really liked about this, was that how they were filleted for the men to take home. A rod was placed up the back of the lamb, 
and then a crossbar at their forelimbs, at their, their front limbs. And so there are these millions of men leaving the temple that day with these sheep, with these lambs on crosses all throughout Jerusalem. So yes, there is a foreshadowing in the literature, like St. John is saying right now, of the cross in the literature of scripture. But there is also, to complement this, the foreshadowing of Jesus' crucifixion and death as the Lamb of God in Jewish culture, in that visual symbol. And so finally, when we look to the cross, considering the reflection we have just done, how can any of us doubt the unlimited depths of God's love for us, his limitless charity? And a great gift of the cross is that we get to carry it daily. St. Jerome in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel says, the cross must always be carried so that we might always show that we love him. A wonderful thing to reflect on is just that. Through the cross, we are therefore allowed to show God our love in gratitude for his. I think as we approach this weekend, as we, I think, from here on approach the week of Pascha, we're going to have a lot to think about now. And if you go online, maybe I'll, I'll leave a link to St. John's, um, St. John of Damascus, Damascus's exposition of the cross, and you can read it over yourself and, you know, get yourself more prepared. I think also, it should be noted that uh, during the week of Holy Week, I think I'm going to omit any posting on our Instagram page. We did so over Christmas, like leading up to Christmas, we stopped posting, I believe. And it kind of it kind of dinged us a bit with our with our um, analytics, but whatever, I don't care. You shouldn't be on your phone during Holy Week. So we're going to be doing that. No posting. And there won't be any episode that week. I think I'm going to end this series um, on uh, the Sunday of his entry into Jerusalem. And then I'm going to be done. And we'll, we'll be done season three then. And further news about um, uh, any further podcasting you'll hear on our Instagram page or on our Facebook. So be sure to follow us there on Sword of the Cloud on Facebook and on Instagram. Also, before this season is up, I think we're going to be doing another Icon giveaway. And I'm feeling inclined to do St. Joseph. Sarah and I have been doing the consecration to St. Joseph. And I believe it ends on the 19th. This is um, a Western tradition. And it's, um, it's ending on the Western feast day of St. Joseph. But that's okay. We can still... We can still be cool. We can still be Joseph-loving Eastern Catholics. So uh, I think we're going to be giving away an icon in honor of being consecrated to him. So stay tuned for that. Be on our Instagram. Be on our Facebook. And um, look out for our next icon giveaway. That being said, I think that it is time to close for today. And I'm going to pray the rest of the contact, the contactian that we were praying earlier. Let's begin in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
To your cross, O Master, we bow in veneration, and we glorify your holy resurrection. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and forever and ever. Amen. Thanks very much for listening. This has been Your Dose of Agios.